feel like that, reading that number felt like a telethon or something. <laughs> felt like a QVC or something. If you, if you call in right now, you can get, you can get such and such with just three easy installments of installments of $39.99. Man, what a, what a time to be alive. And what a time to return back to Romans. I'm sure many of you were betting that we were going to start a new series called Capitalisms or something of the effect. We are not... We are going to get back to Romans, and we're going to work our way back up to where we ended. We ended at the Romans 8, and we're beginning Romans 9 when the pandemic hit. So what I intend to do today is I'm going to do an overview of chapter 1 in Romans. So we're going to hit the whole chapter. Obviously, because of that, I'm not going to dive deep into all of it because when I did Romans 1, I think I did it in five messages. So I don't intend to do that today. I'm just going to do one sermon and just kind of at maybe 15,000 feet looking at it. But as we'll find out as we get towards the end of the chapter, there is application for our current cultural moment, which I was encouraged by as I was reviewing this again. There is application for us as we process our current cultural moment. But in order to, for us, there's a couple things here. So some of us, a lot of us were here when we started Romans a year and a half ago, maybe even two. There was a lot of us that weren't here. So there's this challenge of what do you say, what don't you say? So there are going to be things that if you were here for the series, you're going to hear again because I'm not reinventing the wheel, going to communicate the same things some stuff a little differently, but I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. But then if you weren't here, there are going to be some things, obviously, that you haven't heard. And so we'll get the best of both worlds as it relates to that. And we'll go through the whole chapter and we'll end up finishing chapter 32, which I believe when we get to the end of Romans 1, it has something to say about what we were processing and what Mike was praying for as it relates to what's happening last week at the Capitol a couple days ago. God's word always has something to say, and there's some application there, and I believe we'll find some of that today. Now, the first thing to know about Romans is, and I said this in the, first, the very first message, is that the, the, to me, the greatest demonstration of grace is seen in the fact that there is a book called Romans. And Romans, if you don't know, is 16 chapters. It is by far the most theological book that Paul wrote. It is the most dense theological understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And it's, and it's the greatest demonstration of grace because Rome and the Romans are the people that killed Jesus Christ. These are the people that when, when he was hung up on a cross, it was the Roman soldiers that Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was the Roman soldiers that were whipping Jesus' back. It was the Roman soldiers that were forcing Jesus to carry a, wooden, a heavy 100-pound cross up a hill while crowds of people are mocking him. It was the Romans who were 
who were the ones hitting him and spitting on him. It was the Romans who killed Jesus Christ. And it's the Romans who God decided to give the most theological book about how to be a Christian to this city, to these people. If that is not a demonstration of God's grace, this is a city that he should have destroyed because they killed his son. And this is a city where he plants a church. He plants a church in this city. The same people that killed Jesus are now learning how to be like him. That is a significant demonstration of grace. So when you think of the book of Romans, don't think of it as just this dense theological book. Think of it as this dense theological demonstration of grace because the fact that these people who killed Jesus have the most theological book and a church in their city is incredible. Now, this was a ideal location for a church. It was in a port city, so people were coming in and out. It would be like having this church in New York City, right on the water, in Manhattan, right on the water, where people are just coming in and out. And so there's a possibility for people to hear the gospel and then go back to where they came from and take that gospel with them. It was a wonderful location for a church, but this church wasn't planted by an apostle. And in fact, this church has somewhat of a, a, a challenging narrative because in A.D. 49, a man named Claudius who was overseeing Rome, he was the emperor, he kicked out all of the Jews because they were fighting over the Christ. They were fighting over if Jesus is the Messiah or not. So he excommunicated all Jews from Rome, and for the next five years, there were no Jews unless they were hiding their ethnic identity. There were no Jews in Rome. And so what happens is a church gets established, and it's mostly a Gentile church, non-Jewish people. Now, Jews came back five years later when Claudius died, and they were able to come back to a church that had been established on its own, and it had its own beliefs and understandings about who Jesus Christ is based on who, who, who planted that church, the, the role of the Jews. And I would say many of them, many of them, as we'll see as we get later on in, in chapter 11, there was some... There was some discrepancy about the Jews and God because they rejected Jesus. Those who were not Jewish felt like, hey, you guys are no longer a part of the family of God or the people of God. There was some Christian liberty that needed to be talked about. There was some, how do I apply the theology that I agree with? So when the Jews come back, people who were fighting over Jesus to Gentile Christians, and now they're coming to the same place, this had the potential to be a hostile environment. And so Paul, not having been there, not knowing any of these people, he writes a letter. And he opens his letter up with the most theological opening out of all of Paul's letters. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 1. He says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. And he was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, 
Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who were also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These seven verses are a theological uppercut. I think it's safe to say that there's no other letter that Paul wrote that has this introduction with this much theology. In fact, most of Paul's letters contain verse 1 and verse 7. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as God as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's typically how Paul opens the letter. Hey, how you guys doing? I'm Paul. Blessed to be talking to you, people who are loved by God. Let's get to the letter. That would have been interesting if he did that. But he doesn't. He adds verses 2 through 6 to bring a lot of weight to what's happening. But to do that, though, he does something in verses 1 and 7. He bookends verses 1 and 7 by identity. Paul cares about this whole section is about identity. Listen to what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is my identity. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, set apart to be an apostle for God. This is my identity. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Here's your identity. So here's my identity. I'm an apostle. Here's your identity. You're saints. Bookended. Paul makes sure that his introduction is all about the identity in Christ and the family element. In fact, even verses 2 through 6 are all about understanding the family dynamics, understanding the lineage of Christ. Let me show this to you because this is what he's doing in verses 2 through 6. Paul is making sure that if you, if you read this letter and you only heard verses 1 through 7, you would hear the gospel, you would have confidence in the scriptures, which would have been more the Old Testament to them. And you would have hope in your identity in Christ if you were a believer in just these seven verses. Paul makes this about family. This is about familial understanding. This is familial theology. This is your family at work. So he begins with his identity in verse 1. In verse 2, listen to what he gets to. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So now you get this promise of who Jesus is. Reminding you of the grace of God through the prophets throughout history. Then he gets to verse 3, the lineage of David, the family of David. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So he's bringing you into the Old Testament. Let's, let's, let's look at God's faithfulness. The family of God, the family of David comes the son of God Jesus Christ. Then he gets to the lineage of the Godhead, the Trinity. And he says this in verse 4. So you get Old Testament credibility, and in verse 4, you get New Testament validity. Here's what he says in verse 4. This is the lineage of the Trinity. He says, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So here you have him connecting the dots to the lineage of Jesus to the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit, and these things all coming together. 
And then in verse 5, he talks about our responsibility to this lineage. And he says this, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, among all the Gentiles. So you see, Paul's writing this letter to a church that he knows is more Gentile than Jewish, and he's making sure they understand you have a family. You have a family. My identity and your identity are the same. Our roles are different. I'm an apostle, and you are saints. Let me explain to you who your family is. This is a family reunion passage. When I was a kid, we used to have these family reunions every couple of years, and I used to like them because you'd run into people who had all these stories about you that you don't even know. I'd run into people that'd be like, man, look at you. I remember when you was a baby, you need a whole box of cereal. And then you'd be like, oh, okay. Oh, this your aunt such and such. Oh, okay. Man, you got so big. Look how old are you now? You're so handsome. Like, oh, okay. Oh, I just wanted to see my cousins. I ain't really care about all that. I just wanted to see where my cousins at. Where my cousins that have fun at. We had these breakdancing contests. And you know I was one of them joints. <laughs> I was killing them. I was, I was killing them. It was like a family, it was a family reunion. I love it. The food was amazing. The fun was amazing. This is a family reunion. Do you know who your family is? Do you know how you're connected as part of the family of God? This is what he's introducing. There's an, there's an important reality here. And he says this, our responsibility to the lineage in verse 5. And then he gets to our addition. He makes sure that it's clear that we're added to the family. And he says this, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. There is our, so we get the the promise of the lineage in verse 3. You get the lineage of David, the Old Testament credibility. You get the lineage of the Trinity, the New Testament validity. You get our responsibility to this family lineage. And then our addition. This is all a part of his introduction. So if these people, if someone came here and only heard these seven verses read and they had to go, they have a lot to chew on. Identity is important. Identity is important. Who you are and who you believe you are is significant in how you live and what you stand for. And we see that happening all the time. Make no mistake, what happened at the Capitol was about identity. Who am I and what do I stand for? It was about identity all over the place. Every sign was identity. Everything. Identity is important because who you are or who you believe that you are will develop into who you become. So Paul starts this letter off. Let me remind you of your identity. And he shows it there. He shows his responsibility to Christ. He shows our responsibility to Christ. And then he moves on after the identity in verses 8 through 15. And he goes on to explain the reason why he's writing this letter to the church. He explains the reason why, beginning in verse 8. And he says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. 
God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling them the good news about his son that I constantly mention you. Always asking in my prayers that if somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So in these verses, after this sort of robust theological family affair in verses 1 through 7, he explains his reason for writing and his reason for coming to be with them. It's clear from the passage he's never met these folks. He says, I've been praying that if somehow God would let me come to you. He encourages them that their faith is being made known everywhere. Now, this was important because Rome was such a significant city. It was the world power of the day. To be able to say that there was a church in Rome, a church of believers in Jesus Christ, mind you, people who know about Jesus know where he was killed. And I bet you, and I can't prove this from any letter per se, but I bet that no one thought there's going to be a church in Rome. That is the most godless place on the face of the earth. And now people are hearing from Paul, no, 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 no. The gospel is so significant that it's reached that city, that there is a church in Rome. And so he's telling them, I'm telling everyone about you, encouraging them. You see, this, this section is the most affectionate part of Romans 1. And I would say on some level, even the whole book, there's some parts in chapter 8 towards the end, particularly where he, starting at 8.18 on down, but, but this is an affectionate part of the letter for Paul. He personalizes his affection for the church, and there's a lesson to be learned from him by this. So what he does, this is what he does. Look at the verse, look at verse 9. For first, I thank God through, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. So here's the encouragement. God is my witness. So you see, he uses God as his standard for truth. God is my witness. And then he says, what is God his witness to? That he ser- whom he serves with the spirit in telling the good news about his son that he constantly mentions you. He's telling them that he mentions them in his prayer significantly and expresses a desire to come be with them. And he does something here that I think is really amazing. He talks about, now this is the apostle Paul. These are people that, listen, They've heard about Paul. This is the dude that was persecuting the Jews that is now preaching about believing in the same Jesus whom he was persecuting. Everyone's heard of this dude, and he's telling them, I want to come see you and impart some spiritual gift to you, but I also want to get something from you for me. You see, Paul is doing something amazing. The apostle Paul is leveling the playing field and making sure people realize, hey, listen, 
This is a mutual affair here. We're all believers. God has given you something, and I want to glean from that. This is a wonderful leadership moment where he, he acknowledges that, listen, he can come there and be like, I got something to teach you, and I can't wait to tell you all this and do all this, and, and he can make it about himself and his position and who he is in comparison to them, but instead, he says, listen, I got something I want to give to you, a spiritual gift, and I want to get something from you for me. He says, we're mutually encouraged by each other's faith, verse 12 tells us, both yours and mine. That means if you're a new Christian in this church and you hear the Apostle Paul say that he's coming and he wants to impart some spiritual gifts, sure, absolutely, that's the Apostle Paul. But then you hear, hey, I want to be mutually encouraged by your faith. Who you are is important too. I'm, I'm trying to get something from you. That's huge. That's huge. What I love about this passage is that the reality of loving one another is front and center. And remember, Paul doesn't know these people. He's never met these people. The only thing that he knows is that they have the same faith in the same God. He's heard some things, which he acknowledges in Romans 16. The reality of loving one another is huge. These people don't have the same background. They don't have the same music style, the same hobbies. They don't have the same, they got the same faith and the same God. And Paul says, listen, I don't know you. I haven't met you, but I'm excited about you. I'm telling people of you and I'm praying for you. This is a wonderful lesson because if Paul can love and pray for people he doesn't know, then we should be able to love and pray for people we do know. If he can say, these are people that I haven't even met, but just because I know you believe in Jesus Christ, I love you and I'm excited, then we should be able to pray for the people that we do know, the people in our own churches, the people in our communities. This is an example. If he's setting that, this is huge. May his praying and loving people he doesn't know Encourage us to pray for and love people that we do know. He goes on to express his heart for mission. And by mission, I just mean to have people believe in Jesus. In verses 14 and 15, he says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There's two things to keep in mind here, which I think are incredible. One, he's giving you a scope of people. I'm here to preach to anybody. I'm not keeping anybody from hearing the gospel. Greeks to barbarians, wise to the foolish. I'm preaching to everyone. And he says, specifically, I'm obligated to do so. Obligated. From God, I have to do this. And then he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. But these people already believe the gospel. These, I mean, he's already acknowledging that they have faith that he's telling everybody about. What you mean, Paul, you're eager to preach the gospel? You see, he makes it clear that the ongoing training and teaching and preaching of the gospel, it has to keep happening. It doesn't stop. The gospel is not an, ev uh, an evangelistic proclamation. It is an ongoing reminder of who we are, our identity, and how we behave. 
You see, that's what makes our identity unique is we believe and behave a particular way. And so the gospel that he's eager to preach is to continue that belief and that behavior. And in doing all of that, he connects us all. We're family. I don't know you. This is a family affair. I'm the uncle that you haven't met, but I'm glad to see you. I've heard a lot about you. How you doing? How's school? But Paul is, how you doing? How's your faith? He continues moving. He continues moving. Again, we're just doing an overview. There's much that could be said. We're doing an overview. He gets to the theme verse of his life, ministry, of this book, and essentially everything that Paul is about. This is the theme verse of the entire book of Romans. And you could say his life. And here's what he says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here we've transitioned now. This is a bridge here. We began with this great introduction in verses 1 through 7. Paul briefly explains who he is, the theological identity behind who he is. He's a servant, slave, called as an apostle, set apart for God. He explains the theological identity of who we are, called as saints, loved by God. That's a huge statement, loved by God. He's not saying, hey, if you feel like you're loved by God, then you're loved by God. He's saying, theologically speaking, because you believe in Jesus, you're loved by God. After that, he gives us this, this affection for them and his desire to come and see them and not just to hang out and just, you know, not, not the family where we're just going to eat some good food and just relax and watch the youngins dance or whatever. No, he says, we're going to mutually encourage each other's faith. But now, Paul transitions. Let me summarize. Let me summarize what I'm about. Let me summarize this. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that phrase coming from Paul is huge. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I'm not embarrassed to associate with it. He's not ashamed to proclaim it. He's not ashamed to sustain it. Paul doesn't feel bad for believing and preaching the good news. In fact, he says he's obligated to do so. He's not ashamed of the gospel. But his not being ashamed is of the gospel theologically. Even in this, we find application. What gospel are you not ashamed of? Our cultural climate has many gospels, many gospels. There were people who hold signs, but the gospel they're not ashamed of is a political gospel. It's a theological gospel. There's people not ashamed of other types, philosophical gospels and medical gospels and all this stuff. But what gospel are you not ashamed of? 
You see, this is an identity statement for Paul. I'm not ashamed of the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, fulfilled the Old Testament promises. And it's telling me to invite people into the kingdom. He's not ashamed of that. This is an important statement because coming from Paul, this is what we know of Paul. Paul says this statement, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, in this backdrop. In Acts 9, when Paul gets saved, here's what the Lord said to him. said to a man named Ananias. Paul was blinded and couldn't see. And Jesus talks to Ananias and he says, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In 2 Timothy 3, 10, verses 11 and 10 and 11, here's what Paul says to Timothy. But you have followed my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Verse 11, along with the persecutions and the sufferings that came to me, and Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's talking about this in 2 Corinthians 11, when he says this, are they servants of Christ? Talking about people who were judging him for his sufferings, and he's not really an apostle. In other words, they were saying, no apostle of God would suffer as much as he has. And here's what Paul says. Are they servants of Christ talking about the people saying that? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent the night and day in the open sea on frequent journeys I faced dangers in rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's not talking about, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a Christian or to mark on a box on a document that I'm a Christian or to tweet something that's Christian or to post something on Facebook that's Christian. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed, he's saying, I'm not ashamed to be beaten. I'm not ashamed to be almost killed. I'm not ashamed to be in prison. I'm not ashamed to suffer. I'm not afraid to do any of those things because I believe in Jesus Christ because it is the power to save. That's what he's saying and that's what he means here and it begs the question, question, are we ashamed? Are we ashamed to be mocked and ridiculed? People walk away from Jesus Christ for the smallest difficulties. The sufferings that come. Our whole, half of our whole political climate is fear of persecution for being a Christian when fear of persecution is Christian. creating different gospels that say, don't suffer. It's like the apostles who are saying, no, no, Christians don't suffer. 
No. No. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. When Paul says he's not ashamed, he's not talking about identifying with Jesus. He's talking about taking one for the team. He's talking about getting hit by Negan in the back, taking it like a champ. He's talking about, I believe this enough that when suffering comes, when persecution comes, I'm not going anywhere. When I get betrayed by people I know and people I don't, I'm not going anywhere. This is what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. And sadly, I think what we're seeing culturally is people very much ashamed of the gospel and pretending to represent the gospel. I'm not looking forward to any persecution. But I'm also not running from any persecution. And let me just say this. Persecution is not having your account deleted by big tech media. Those are first world problems that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm talking about. This is the problem that I'm having is all this Christianity is so connected to American consumerism and culture. Being ashamed of the God. To me, who, if, if they cancel my account, so what? They have nothing to do with my faith in Christ. Okay, so I can't promote my podcast and my album, and I can't try to come up with a clever tweet and get likes and follows, and I can't maybe find out how some friends and family are doing elsewhere, like the phone doesn't work. And if they take that, they take that. My faith in Jesus Christ, that's not persecution. That's inconvenience. And if anything, it has to do with the Constitution, not Christ. What we're talking about, what's really happening is, are we ashamed of the gospel? The gospel that persecutes those who believe in it. Not the gospel that protects freedoms and stuff like that. Those are good things, fine. But when those things go, does your faith go with them? And if it does, then that's not a gospel that Paul's talking about. Listen, a day is coming soon. Coming soon. Where if you say you believe in Jesus, you are going to have to prove it. A day is coming soon. Well, you're going to have to believe it. You're going to have to prove it. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul can say that after he's been beaten. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to identify with being persecuted. The gospel that we're seeing right now is fear of persecution. Oh, no, they're going to do this. And you know what that does, that fear does? It makes us angry. 
and makes us hate people who are making us feel. You know how, you ever, you, ever, you ever have somebody, right? You ever be walking in the dark or something or you just be in your house, right? And somebody come up on you be like, boom, and you be like, man, don't do that. And you get angry right away, right? Your first instinct, you be mad for a second because you don't want to be angry. You don't, you don't want to be afraid. You don't, unless you choose it, unless you go in a haunted house or something on Halloween on your own, or you sit in the front of the roller coaster, or you watch a scary movie knowing it's going to do that, that's sort of a decision that you make, right? But for the most part, we don't like to be afraid. We don't like people to make us afraid. So we'll get a little bit mad for a second then, our friendship with it might kick in and be like, man, I, boy, I was, I'm telling you, man, I was getting ready. Whatever that is, right? We don't like to be afraid. So when, we're, when, when, when we feel like we're in fear and the people are causing it, it doesn't make us love those people. It makes us hate those people. And when you have a gospel that's being promoted, that's we need to run and flee. This is persecution. This isn't what the, first of all, it's not persecution for believing in Jesus. But this gospel that's going around now, it's like fear is the new faith. Says who? That's not the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's not the gospel. That's a theological gospel or some other gospel. But it's not a theological gospel. We need to be careful. We're very attached to what we love. We're attached to our comforts. And this is the first time where, man, the Lord is letting it get really uncomfortable. We got a pandemic going on, like, medically, and we got a pandemic going on politically. And we're just sitting there watching, and we're figuring out, what do we, what do we believe? Whose side are we on? We have to be careful. Because this gospel of fear will make us lose our biblical sensitivities. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power to save. The power to save. He goes on in verse 17 and he explains why or how that, how that power works out. And he says this, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The logic of this verse, if we believe it to be true, should produce the same confidence. That the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith and that the righteous will live by faith. This is an important, listen to this. It's, listen to what he's doing here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? I'm not afraid. There's no fear. It's fear and faith. So the righteous will live by faith, not fear. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, not fear to fear. You know, there were some people, I remember one time on Wednesday night we talked about this. Someone mentioned that I, 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 we, all, uh, we all understand this sentiment. Like, man, I just don't want to be associated with like, I don't want to be persecuted because people think I'm a believer that thinks like this or that, and I and totally get it. Totally get it. But not being ashamed of the gospel has nothing to do with not being blamed for the gospel. You know, I get it all the time. If I tell people I'm a pastor, whatever you think about pastors immediately becomes associated with me. And now I have to, even though I don't even know you, 
I have to now act a particular way to change your view of at least me and maybe pastors in general. So it's encouraging when people say, man, you down to earth, man. You fly like, I appreciate talking to you. I, had, I mean, I thought pastors were filling the blank. I feel like, man, I'll, I have to do, that's a part of the culture we live in. If you are a certain way or look a certain way or have certain attributes and people find that out, man, that's just life. Listen, Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. He didn't say why they would hate you. He didn't say that it's going to be because you believe in him, but he didn't say it was going to be the accurate, you did accurately what they said you did. No. They're going to hate you because you actually believe in the Bible and you stand for what the Bible teaches. And there are going to be people who disagree and hate you. But we live in a culture where that kind of gospel is only lip service. It's not a functionality of our lives because most of us haven't experienced any real persecution for our faith except somebody not liking our tweet or going back and forth with us on Facebook. And it's so stressful that we have to get out of Facebook for four months. It's like, man, there's people in other parts of the world dying for what they believe in. When I was on the streets, man, we would, I was around dudes that would die just to prove a point. Just to prove a point. Just to prove they gangster. We gangster. We willing to die for that. I almost went to prison for 43 years because I was willing to do that for, some, for, a street, for a street credibility in a shootout broad daylight. Nah, that's nothing to die for or live for. This is, though. This is what Paul is getting at. He's excited in the righteous. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And the righteous will live by faith, not fear. Be honest with where you're at. If you're living in fear, you can still, that's okay. It happens to all of us. But don't confuse fear and faith. And don't confuse constitutionalism with Christianity. It's okay to want this, but when you can't lose, you can't have this, you still have to have this. You still have to do this. In other words, I still have to love my enemies, even if they're the opposite of me. I still have to love the people who stormed the Capitol, even though I'm offended. I still have to love the people that marched in Black Lives Matter, even if I'm offended. You see, we don't, that's a different gospel than what we're seeing. I have to love President Trump, even if I don't like him. I have to love Joe Biden, even if I don't like him. See, that's the gospel that God's calling us to. Is that the gospel you're committed to? I get it. Be offended. Be offended. Let's get it. Let's work through it. Let's work through it. This is the gospel. We can't play around with all this stuff. We can't play around with this, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. Yes, we're, we're hurt by these things. We're offended by these things. But Jesus says, listen, I separate you. I called you out to be different than these things. So if we lose our freedoms, will you lose your faith? By God's grace, my faith is greater than my freedoms. And when I think about brothers and sisters in other parts of the country that don't have those freedoms and they have their faith, man, I pray that I keep mine. 
I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a toe stepper. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This verse started a revolution, or better, a reformation. If I had time, I'd get into that, but I don't. So Paul uses that as a bridge verse. It's one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. If we, take a, if we think about what it means theologically and apply it practically like we've just been talking about. Now he moves to the instruction part of the letter. The introduction is gone. So from introduction to now instruction. Now he's going to explain what he meant in verse 15, 14 and 15. I'm obligated to preach to the Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. He's going to explain now with this instruction why he's obligated, why he's not ashamed of the gospel, why it's the power to save. He's going to explain that because now he needs to explain humanity. He needs to explain an aspect of humanity that helps you understand why Jesus came, why that gospel, why all that, the, 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 the promise through the Holy Scriptures in, in, in verses 1 through 7, the son of David and the, the son of God through power and the trinity, through the resurrection of the dead. He's going to explain why all of that that happened in verse 1 through 7, why Jesus came, why he was resurrected from the dead. He's going to now explain why that is necessary. And he begins, and what he does here, he, you know, with Moses in the book of Genesis, Moses, with the, five, the first five books, Moses is writing this narrative so the Israelites know how the world began and how they became the people of God. So he's basically going to say, okay, let's, let's, let me explain to you what happened. God created everything. He created Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and then so forth. And then, he, then he just, there's Abraham, and then we're all descendants of Abraham, and this is what happens. And all. So he's writing so that they have an understanding of their identity, their lineage, their family. Every, listen, this is always about family. It's always about identity and family. And who's, who's you want to know what your identity, whose family are you in? Whose family are you in? Well, Paul does something similar. It's almost as if Paul is writing this account of what happened. He wants to make sure that this church understands why the world is, the sin that's in the world, why it is the way you see it. But he doesn't give the, the Genesis 3 paradigm. He explains something different and explaining why the world that you see around you is the way that it is. He's doing for Moses what Moses did for the Israels to these Gentiles. Let me explain to you why the world is crazy. Why there's worship of all these gods and all this stuff running around. Why there's evil. Let me explain to you why that is the case. So he gives sort of a, a, an abbreviated version of the fall of man. And he says it here beginning in verse 18. He says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since we, what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. 
As a result, people are without excuse. Let me just pause there for a second. Let's make sure we understand what's going on here. He says that his wrath is coming because people are godless and unrighteous and they suppress the truth. This is coming. They're godless and they're unrighteous and they suppress the truth. And then he explains what that truth is. What are they suppressing? Verse 19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. So in other words, he's saying this, that what God has created, the order of the universe, the sun, moon, stars, mountains, stability among uh, uh, nature, you know, whatever other, just this idea, all these, what he calls these invisible attributes. So these would be God's ability, his, his perfection, his, his, his understanding of beauty and detail, the morality of things. I mean, people could be worse than they are. He's saying that all of this has been seen in just the creation of the world. And somehow, from God's perspective, that people looking around at the world should be like, man, there is a God that created this. And even if I don't know his name, I'm worshiping the God that created this. He said these people can't even look around and see all this stuff. They didn't have a Big Bang Theory back then. They didn't have a Big Bang Theory. They had some philosophies on how the world came into being and things like that, but they didn't have all the scientific stuff that we're exposed to. They had philosophy, and there was, you know, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and all these guys have these sort of ideas of how the world came into existence and what it is, and it's fire, it's water, it's oxygen, it's air, it's all these different things. He's saying, no, it's God. And the God who created these things has said, listen, I've given you enough breadcrumbs that it should have led you to this reality. And you're suppressing the truth. Now, he's not describing, he's describing general revelation. He's not describing, oh, these people have saving faith in Jesus Christ, like the Spirit is coming. He's talking about, look, general revelation. You should be able to see that, like, the beauty of this world has been created by a being that is more beautiful that is more worthy. And he said, because you didn't, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for Images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. You see, he's saying, listen, you could have... In other words, listen, if the God who created, if these creatures that we think are, are amazing, then the God who created all this must be more amazing. But he's saying people decided to worship the creatures. They wanted to worship the creatures. They exchanged the glory for the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. When I was in India, we would travel to a lot of different villages and places. I mean, we'd go like three hours, four hours away from where we were staying sometimes. And I mean, it was, it was, it was relentless. It was, it was like every town had a different thing they worshiped. So one town, it was snakes. One town, it was rats. One town, it was pumas. One town, it was monkeys. One town, it was cows. One town, it was Shiva the Destroyer. One town, it was just all over the place. And it was just like, wow. And there's an important reality about this. See, people are created for worship. There is, there is not one person who doesn't worship. Not one. It's impossible. Because part of being made in God's image, listen, made in God's image is not about being a Christian. It's about being a human. Even marriage. Marriage is not a Christian ordinance. It's a creation ordinance. Having children is not a Christian thing. It's a, it's a creation thing. It's a human thing. This is a reality. Like these are, these are things that worship is fundamentally a part of who we are. We worship. We worship something greater than us. We worship what we believe created us. We worship what we believe sustains us. This is why there's so many religions. It's not because there's so many religions. It's because people have been given a desire to worship because that's part of what it means to be a human being. Part of being made in God, we got a kitten. I love this little dude. I never thought I'd like cats. This little dude is my man. But he's not worshiping God, though. This morning, he was worshiping, attacking my arms and legs, wrestling with me. He was, this morning, he was worshiping this little mouse we got on a string that we just move around, and he just be on it. And I'm like, good, because when we have real mice, be on them. He can't worship, though, because he's not created in God's image. As much as gorillas and apes and stuff are close to human beings and where you get this lie of evolution and Darwinism, they can't worship them. They can't worship God. They don't have the mental faculties. They don't, they're not created in his image. They can't worship him, but human beings can worship. We're created and everyone worships. It's just some people worship their own self. People who don't believe in God, that's, that's, they don't believe in absolute truth. Well, that's the absolute truth. <laughs> There's no God, right? So you, you worship yourself. You worship, we're just created to worship. And so Paul is describing, listen, humanity in and of itself doesn't want to worship the God that created all the beauty. They want to, they want to worship what they perceive as beautiful. And so he slides into what's happening and he gets to verse 24 and 25. And he says, therefore, now therefore means as a result of this, as a result of this, all this, this, this not willing to worship God and exchanging the glory of God, he says that God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what, was, what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. This word, God, they exchanged. This is an important word. It's, it's, it's an intentional changing of what you know to be true versus that. Or if we were thinking of it in a sort of a, 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 a consumeristic perspective, it's 
I got a gift. I don't like it. Let me go back and exchange it. There's a process that I do to exchange something. I got to take it back, give this one back, and get this one. So this word, they exchange. This is, I'm giving back this truth, this beauty, for what I, this beautiful creature. Now, this text says some stuff that sounds kind of challenging because the first part of it makes it seem like, well, God is the one who did this. He gave them over. It says he delivered them over in the desires of their hearts, sexual impurity. And it could look like, man, well, God's the one who did this. He's the one who gave people over to that. But we have to understand what it's saying here in the context. There is a consequence for denying God. There's a consequence for denying reality. See, God isn't going against their will when it says he delivered them over. What it says is God's no longer restraining their will. He's no longer restraining them from pursuing their will. See, God has been restraining them And because they choose to continually disobey him, then he's no longer restraining them from what they want to do of their own volition. And this challenges our notion for the most part because people, we have to come to believe this, that people are not as good as we tend to believe that they are. We just tend to believe people are good. You you know, it's funny. And let 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 me prove this to you, right? People don't think they're, Really, we think we're better than, 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 than who we really are. And this is, here's the point. Right now, you'll hear a lot of this rhetoric. This is not us. Like, we should, I can't, like, this is not, uh, this is not who we are, talking about, you know, the American society and our democracy. This is not who we are. This is not what we do. This is, this is exactly who we are. What's that NBC, NBC show called, This Is Us? This is us. This is exactly who we are. We're people who worship other things but God. We're people who worship mankind. We worship ideas and ideologies. This is who we are. Saying this isn't us is what keeps the deception going. This is us. We're actually worse than this if you believe the Bible, at least. I happen to believe the Bible. See, we tend to think we're, we're better than what we are, and so then we get confused. This is us, NBC Live. We have to also understand that disobedience has serious consequences. Listen, that what makes grace grace and what makes is that some people will experience that versus the, what they do deserve is wrath. You can't have grace without wrath. If it's all grace, then there's no, there's, there's no grace. If it's Christmas every day, it's never Christmas because there ain't no day. It's not, it's not special, right? What makes grace amazing is that we all deserve to have God to turn us over to our desires, and yet he doesn't. He turns us away from them. That's what makes grace amazing. But you can't have grace without wrath. Someone has to experience the consequences of their actions. If no one ever does, then there's, that's not grace. 
You can't distinguish it. What makes it, what makes it mercy, what makes those things real is that someone's experiencing something they shouldn't. Those are things we have to understand. So God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. He's no longer holding them back from the evil that they are capable of. He's not restraining them. And then verse 21, they talked about their minds being darkened, right? Since their minds are darkened, he's saying, okay, let your actions equally go with your minds. And the actions of their bodies reveal the severity of their darkness. This is the logical conclusion of idolatry. It's self-worship. Good and evil on our own terms. This is the reality. And this is why it's humbling for a Christian because we know that we do all these things. We're capable of these things. We have capable of them in our hearts. And yet God is not just stopping us. He's changing us. Let me remind you again from what he says, just to make sure that people aren't confused about why God would remove the restraints on people. It's not him making you do something you don't want to do. It's removing the grace that's been stopping you from doing what you desire to do. He says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. And just to be clear, what is the lie? What is the lie? That you should worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. It's what should have been worshipped forever versus what should have never been worshipped at all. And that's what's happening. And this is what we're finding out. This is what we're seeing play out even in our cultural context. You cannot worship an idol the same way you worship God. You just can't. You cannot worship an idol the same way you worship God. Because worship always has at its core two main things, intimacy and morality. Worship always has intimacy and morality at its core. Biblically speaking, these are the things that happen. You, when you worship something, you believe in it. You believe in what it is or who, who they are. You believe in them. And then from that belief in them, you love them. You have affection. You want to express some affection. You want to spend time with. You want to be like this person. You, that's what, then you trust them. And then you obey them. And worship and, and intimacy and morality come together in all of these. And here's where it be, idolatry becomes dangerous because you become, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. You, everything that's, every, every aspect of worship is intimacy and morality. You're going to want to have a relationship with, you're going to love, and you're going to obey. Morality, you're going to do things based upon that. You become what you worship. This is why idolatry, this is why the scripture says, look, when we worship Jesus, we become like him, right? Be Christ-like, right? Walk in a manner worthy, right? 
Walk as he walked. Why? Because if you worship Jesus and you have intimate, by intimacy with Jesus is we pray, we read, we seek him. And then there's morality. We resist the things that he says because we love him. So this is biblical. You become what you worship. If you worship Jesus, you will become like him. If you worship political ideologies, you will become like them. If you worship other things, you will become like them. And this is, this, is the, this is the problem with idolatry. You cannot worship an idol the same way you worship God because no idol has the moral fortitude that will be worthy of worship. If you worship a creature, imagine if I worship this cat. The things that I'm going to do to try to be like this cat. I might eat cat food. I might get a litter box, poop in that. Ask my wife to take it, clean that out. Because I'm a cat, I can't do it. All I can do is just put more litter over it. You're welcome, Dean. If I try to become like this thing and worship my cat, I'm going to lose my mind. Because it doesn't have the moral value, it doesn't have the moral character. What does intimacy look like with this cat? I'm going to meow a lot. Try to talk to it. Him. You can't worship an idol the same way you worship God. And what we're seeing is a lot of worship of idols, pretending like it's worship of God. This is why Jesus said you will know them by their fruits because you become like what you worship. If you worship people who are made in the image of God, then you are worshiping something that God created to worship him. And now you're worshiping a variety of definitions of good and evil. Oh, okay, yeah, well, they think this, I agree with them on this, I'm with them on this, and I'm, I'm with them on this, and I'm with them on this, and, and all of a sudden, you got all these people that you agree with and doing all this stuff, you don't even know who you are. You forget who you are. What do you actually really think apart from what they think? You worship a person or people, then you worship their definition of good and evil. Idolatry, you cannot worship an idol the way you worship God. And there are consequences for doing so. He goes on to say that in verse 26 and 27, he says this, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now, this scripture is a problem in this culture because God is explaining something significant here. The consequences of worship are this. These are some of the consequences of worship. You exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship what was created instead of the creator. Well, mankind is God's greatest creation because we're made in God's image. So it makes sense that at some point, if you're going to worship animals, you're going to eventually, eventually worship one another. So what the scripture is telling us is there's a glory exchange here. There's an identity crisis here. 
This is an identity crisis. And remember, when you worship, it's about morality and about intimacy. And the highest intimacy, the, mor the highest morality you will attain in mankind it falls in fail comparison to what you attain in Christ. There is no morality outside of Christ in humanity. So we have this problem. And in our culture, because of what we worship, there's significant pushback on this verse, these verses. The people who oppose this particular passage and passages like this will say things like this. They will say, well, this passage is talking about natural, a natural disposition. So one of the main arguments for this passage for people who would be pro-same-sex marriage and homosexuality would say this. The authors didn't know about sexual orientation. So when this passage was written, it's talking about people who have a natural disposition towards men, towards women, that are now acting it out on men. And women who have a natural disposition towards women are now acting it out on other women. But I, talking as someone who identifies as same-sex attraction or gay, they would say, my natural disposition is for a man or for a woman. So this isn't talking, it's going at people who have a natural disposition of heterosexuality that, go, that now become homosexual. So there's a challenge with that. Here's the problem with that perspective. The argument in that logic places the word natural as being defined by the person. So what, what does it mean by natural is what is the real issue? If it's defined by me, then that makes sense. Then I think that argument stands. But the problem is the context in which this argument, the context in which these verses are coming is describing a conflict between creature and creator. It's the one who defines existence and the one who defies existence. It's not two equal parties determining these things. It's the context is God who created all things versus humanity who was supposed to worship God who created all things. That's the tension in this passage. It's the, so the creator is the one who defines natural since he created everyone supernaturally. Natural isn't defined by my own desires or my own passions. Natural is defined, and that's the tension here. Whose definition? Who's who? Who do you, who do you worship? Who are you going to be intimate and obey? Who are you going to believe and obey? Who, that's the issue here. It's about creation and creator. We're not, we're not equal. So natural here is not described as how I am naturally perceiving my own desires. Natural is described by God who created me. What is natural to him? And if it's saying that you've given over, people are given over to unnatural desires, then it's God, unnatural is defined by God. You see, the question is not what am I, the creature, naturally drawn to, but what is natural for the way the creator made, it, made, made me? That's the question we have to ask. Not what am I naturally drawn to, but how was I created to act naturally? Now, that doesn't, that doesn't take away from the struggles, the challenges. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the challenges and struggles and the difficulties. We all have 
Naturally, we want to do things that are wrong for us. It's not just about one sexual reality. And that's where the church has, I think, has hurt itself by making this issue the unpardonable sin within the church at times. But it's also the one sin issue that is attacking the church and saying that it's not wrong. You don't see drug dealers, rapists, anybody else saying, hey, this is wrong. This isn't wrong. The Bible doesn't condone this because it condemn this. So we have ourselves in a cultural dilemma, but it's not because what is being taught to us is wrong or that God will work. It's because of what we worship. So if I worship humanity, God's saying the intimacy will come sometimes in same-sex relationships and the morality will come with those things. But it's not just those things. He's highlighting that because mankind is the climax of humanity. And we're going to worship the thing as closest to God as we can. And mankind, we're made in God's image. Even though it looks, we look crazy, and we're, we're the closest thing to God that people will see. Because we're made in his image. Man, so much more could be said here, but... The passage ends with not just the issue of homosexuality, but just immorality in general. And he goes on to say in verse 28 through 32, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceits, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This right here easily can describe our cultural moment. Cultural moment. All of these qualities. I mean, God is no joke. This can describe our cultural moment easily. And if I had time, I'd unpack this a lot more. But I just want to focus on what it said last, the last sentence, verse 32. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This is what, this is what the cultural war is we're facing. It's not, listen, the cultural war is not who do we vote for, it's who do we worship. That's what's happening right now. Everyone's telling you, oh, it's about who did you vote for. It's who do you worship. Who do we worship? Who do we worship? People on the left worship the, the left. People on the right worship the right. People that don't like politics worship that. Who do we worship? That's what this is about. What threw everybody off on, on Wednesday was that the people who typically are on the right, they usually pride themselves on not being that way. They pride themselves on not being that way. And, and, they're, and even still they're saying, well, we didn't burn any buildings and stuff like that. And we went, okay. But you know, the Capitol hasn't been sieged since 1812. 1812. I don't know why anyone is boasting and comparing themselves to not burning down a target. Because the people that are not burning down a target can say, we've never rushed into the Capitol 
during session and threaten Congress. No one's ever died in the Capitol because people are marching because a black man was killed by police. But see, that's the problem. It's always, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And every time you bring something up, well, what about this? And y'all say this, what about that? And you, what about Jesus? What about all of this is wrong? All of it's wrong. All of it's bad. What about Jesus? You see, the cultural war is not, are we losing our freedoms? It's, are we losing our faith? At least for the believer. We're going to lose some freedoms. And that's important to people. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to lose any freedoms either. The question is not, though, should or we shouldn't lose freedoms. The question is, do losing freedoms affect your faith? And if it does, you might need to adjust your perspective some. If it does, I'm not any less a Christian if you cancel all my social media accounts. I'm not any less a Christian if I'm in prison for what I, because I stand for a biblical ethic. I'm not any less a Christian by any of those things. You take my money, you take... Me and Mike were talking about this movie that we saw a long time ago called Enemy of the State, Will Smith joint, where he basically is hunted by, like, the government. And there's this one scene that we, that we talk about where he was with this other actor, Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman was, like, this dude who knew all his secrets, and Will Smith caught up with him. And he wanted to tell his wife he was okay, and he made a call. And all of a sudden, the people traced it and came to kill them. And then they got out of the building, and they blew the whole building up. It was like a big warehouse. And Will Smith said to him, why did you blow the building up? And he said, because you made a phone call. He's like, he, he's like, you brought him here just by that phone call. I can't remember why I was bringing that up. There was a point I was trying to make about bringing that up, and I got so caught up in the scene, I can't remember why I'm bringing that up. I'm so sorry, but I kid you not, it was a killer point. <laughs> but we'll just have to take an L for the team right now. The Lord just took that out. Just for, just, to, just, to, just, to, just, for, just for some humor's sake. I cannot remember why I was bringing that up. But the point is, we have to be careful what we think the war is that we're fighting. Remember Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My problem is not the left. My problem is not the right. My problem is not the hypocrisy of humanity. My problem is the enemy. It's Satan. And he wants division to happen. He wants me to think they're the problem so I cannot love them according to the theological gospel and that I can associate myself with this side according to the theological gospel. And there's no salvation in that gospel. There's only salvation in the one that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of. It's the power of God. Our political framework is not the power of God to save. But Jesus dying on a cross, rising from the dead, giving us his spirit, and then telling us to go in all the world and make disciples, that's the gospel. That's the real war. Don't be confused on Facebook. Yeah, there are things that are true. I even post some things from time to time, but the real war is not big tech media, left or right. It's Satan. 
who's on the left and the right. Overview of Romans 1, done. We'll hit Romans 2 next week. Let me pray. Father, I pray, that, I just want to pray briefly, Lord, that, that, that all of us who profess to believe in you would be able to say with conviction and with some effort, with some hope, some help, that we would be able to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the theological gospel, the one that, that, that talks about Jesus. I'm grateful for Uncle Sam, but he's not Jesus. I'm grateful for the Constitution, but it's not Scripture. Help us to not be blindsided. You are sovereign over big tech media. You are sovereign over a capitalistic society which has platforms in which people have terms and conditions and can choose to to act on those terms and conditions. We all click agree without reading all that, that little print because we don't feel like reading it. And that little print, it says that people have the right to do what they want with their platform. Lord, I just pray that when it becomes about Christian businesses, that they also have the right to, to serve who they want to serve based on their conviction coming from you. But Lord, I pray that we would not lose sight of our reality, that, we're, that this, this gospel that we're seeing, this theological gospel is afraid of persecution and fear and a lot of fear-mongering. And that fear is causing division and making us dislike and distrust other people. I pray that we would not be swayed by this false gospel on either side, left or right. It's a false gospel on the left. We can't eradicate racism and all this stuff. It's impossible because we'd have to kill all the people in the world. Help us not to believe any false gospels here, but the theological gospel the one that Paul is not ashamed of. May we adopt that same reality because it's not, this is not who we voted for. It's who we worship. May we not lose our biblical sensitivities because of our cultural realities. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.